If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to take them and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking... Okay, that's nice. They're unwrapping their Bibles that we just gave them. So. <laughs> got me. All right. That's good. All right, now who's going to be the first to find Ephesians chapter 3? You've got to stand up and read it. Just kidding. Uh, as they are getting their Bibles out, uh, last night I was talking to Pastor Scott at one of the many graduation parties that I'm uh, fortunate enough to go to, and I told him what I was preaching on, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. He says, ah, oh, I preached on that a couple of weeks ago on Wednesday night, and I'm thinking, great, this is really good. So uh, don't grade me, don't evaluate me beside him. Let's just hope and pray that we're able to discern what the Lord has for us this morning. Friday night, I was at uh, Northside Christian Academy's uh, graduation, and the commencement speaker, Dr. Joe Brown, before he started speaking, said, you know, the wisest man in the world, or the wisest man that I know, which just happens to be my father, said to me one time, son, you know, there's no such thing as a bad short sermon. And then he preached for 40 minutes, so I don't... I don't know how that's going to go, but this morning, I really want us to look at this topic of prayer. What fashions our prayers, what motivates us to pray, and how we do pray. But before we get started in that, I want to, the graduates, and maybe just any of us, to think about if you had the opportunity to stumble across a genie in a lamp, what is it that you would wish for? What is it that you would ask that genie for? Now, I know that we as Christians don't believe in genies, but just pretend just for a second. I know uh, 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 one time there was this man who was walking down the beach, and he stumbled across a bottle, and it was a genie bottle, and he picked it up, and he rubbed it, and out pops this genie, and he's like, yes, I've been waiting for this moment my whole life. I know exactly what I am going to wish for. And so the genie says, okay, sir, what is your first wish? And he says, I, I wish for a billion dollars in a Swiss bank account. Boom, there is a receipt in the man's hands for a billion dollars with the account numbers in his hand. And then secondly, he said, you know what? I wish for a red Ferrari. And boom, a brand new red Ferrari was right beside him. And then the genie said, okay, you only have one wish left. What is it? that you would wish for. And he thought for a second, he goes, I want to be irresistible to women. And then boom, he was turned into a box of chocolates. <laughs> Some of you wives out there are saying, boy, I wish I'd have got a box of chocolates instead. I don't know. <laughs> but parents, really, what is it that you pray to the Lord for for your children? Some of us pray that they would just clean the room. Some of us pray that they would just put the lid back on the peanut butter before they put it in the cabinet. Some of us would pray that they would stop putting trash and candy wrappers down in the sofa. Now you can tell I'm speaking from experience, right? I told Caroline and Jay one day, I'm getting them back. I'm going to come to their house and I'm going to do the exact same thing to them that they did for me for all those years. No, really. What is it that we pray for? Do, do we find ourselves simply just praying for their comfort or their safety 
or their prosperity financially and in society? Do we often pray that they would be kept from hardships? Because if we do, we're missing the boat on what I feel like God wants us to pray for our students. Not only to pray for our students, but that we should pray for ourselves. One of the most popular shows on TV now and has been for a while is the show The Deadliest Catch. And that shows about these crab fishermen who go out on the Bering Strait and they fish for these huge crab, but the, the Bering Strait is never calm. It's always rough and the waves are always high and it rocks that boat back and forth constantly, continually, that boat is rocked back and forth, and those fishermen are tossed to and fro on that boat. And I was thinking to myself, that's what life is like. We can't control the storm. We can't control the waves. We can't control if we're going to have financial hardship one day. We can't control if our health fails us one day. We can't control our popularity or whatever it might be, but what we can control is what we pray for. And what we pray for says a lot about who we are and how we handle those kinds of storms. So this morning, I want us to look at a model prayer that Paul prays for the Ephesians that I hope will guide and shape our prayer life, not only for these graduates, but for us as well. So if you would, Stand with me as we read Ephesians chapter 4, 3, 14 through 21. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, teach us to pray like this. God, I pray that the words that are spoken this morning will honor you, that will encourage us to walk in a more intimate relationship with you through our prayer life for the way that we even pray for ourselves and for the way that we pray for those around us. God, I pray that the name of Jesus is exalted and high and lifted up, and that you would draw all of us unto yourself as a result. And we will thank you for it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I want you to ask yourself this morning, when is the last time that you have prayed a prayer like this? I want you to, to dig into the, the words of this passage of Scripture and ask yourself and evaluate your prayer life. Do I pray like this for myself? And do I pray like this for those around me? And most importantly today, do I offer this kind of prayer for these graduates? 
I want us to look at the elements of this prayer and how it's broken down. But before we do that, I want us to look at the for this reason. The first thing I want us to look at is the reason that Paul prays this prayer. I want us to look at the foundation on which Paul builds this prayer. He says in verse 14, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. This past week, Jay had his first job interview. And I went home for lunch on lunch break, and I thought I would try to help him with his interview to help prepare him for what was ahead. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, well son, I'm going to be the interviewer, and you just pretend that I'm interviewing you for the job. And I said, okay, tell me what your likes are. Tell me what your dislikes are. Tell me what you're good at. Tell me what you're not good at. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are your interests? And he would give me uh, uh, the answer that I, w- I was pretty satisfied with. And then I asked him, I said, son, why should Chick-fil-A hire you? And without skipping a bit, he said, because it'd make America great again. <laughs> I said, you ought to say that, man. That's good. That's rich. I like that. I don't know, did you say that? No. Okay. But anyway, I interviewed him in order to help him set the foundation for his future. I wanted him to have a, a, a good cause and a good reason for giving good answers in his interview. Well, Paul here in this prayer is setting the reason it's actually already been said in chapters 1 and 2, the reason and the foundation for this prayer, the foundation of the for this reason is already laid, and we see it in chapters 1 and 2. Take, for instance, chapter 1, verse 3. It says that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4 of chapter 1 says that he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Verse 5 says that he predestined us for the adoption of through Jesus Christ. And verse 7 says that we have been redeemed, we have been forgiven of our sins. And then verse 9, it says that he has made known to us the mystery of his will. And then verse 11, it says that we have obtained a spiritual inheritance. And verse 13 says that we have even been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. Paul is setting the foundation to pray this prayer for the Ephesians so that they understand the greatness of the God that is in them and the greatness of the God that they serve. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 2 and verse 5. It says that Christ through his love, has made us alive together with Christ. And then in verse 8, it says that we have been saved by grace through faith. Verse 10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that were planned from before we were born and before time began. And then in verse 19, we see that we are no longer aliens and strangers, but we have been made a part of God's Family. And in verse 22, we see that we are being made into the very temple of where God will reside. What a great God can accomplish all these things. And Paul has set the groundwork for this prayer that he is praying for the Ephesians. And I want us to see the for this reason in our own life. Is the reason that you pray for your students so that they will succeed and do well or have financial security? 
What is the motive? What is the for this reason that you pray for yourself? And what is the for this reason and the cause that you pray for those around you, especially our students? Now, I believe that that we've established the reason, but let's look at some of the causes, some of the, the elements of this prayer. First, I want us to notice this morning that Paul prays for spiritual strength. Verse 16 says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So the first thing that Paul prays for the Ephesian believers is for spiritual strength. I know that we probably prayed that before. We've probably prayed that a lot of times in times of our weakness when we uh, have some kind of tragic event happened in our life. We pray for strength to make it through that. Well, we don't have to wait for a tragic event to happen in our life. Matter of fact, Paul is saying here for this reason that all these things are great. God is great. He set the foundation for his prayer to pray this prayer in all seasons of life. And so we need to pray for spiritual strength in all seasons of life. And I want us to notice this morning how this spiritual strength comes. First, it comes through the riches of his glory. It comes through the riches of God's glory. We need to think about how rich God is. And we need to allow his wealth to to envelop our heart and envelop our soul and determine who we are as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we need to know that this power and this strength comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we need to know and understand about this spiritual strength of where it goes. And the Scripture tells us that it goes to the inner being. So what does it mean to be strengthened according to the riches of His glory? Well, we've already talked about some of those riches, that He's, that he's so rich that He chose us before the foundations of the world. He's so rich that he adopted us into his family. He's so rich that he redeemed us. He's so rich that he forgave us. He's so rich that he made known to us the mystery of his will. But the Bible is replete with many, many examples of how God is so rich. He's rich in kindness. He's rich in love. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in everything that he attempts. He is rich. That should shape our prayers today, folks. The wealth that God has given to us, and it's at our disposal. How does that give us strength? Well, consider Romans 4, 2 that says, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, the believer finds strength to repent in the richness of the Lord's kindness. And so, what is the big deal about repentance? Well, the richness of God's kindness towards us allows us to know the conviction of sin. And when we are convicted of sin, we repent of that sin. And then we are drawn into a more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. And when we are drawn into a more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus, that gives us strength. We need to pray for that repentance. We need to pray for the Lord's kindness to envelop us, to show us the error of our ways, that we may be drawn into a more personal, more intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus. And that's what we need to pray for our graduates as well this morning. John MacArthur tells a story of a certain rich English man named Julian Morris who liked to dress like a tramp. 
and go door to door and sell razor blades and soap and shampoo, just something to pass the time away. But then he, when he was done with that, he would come home and take off his old tattered ratty clothes and put on his nice new fine clothes and he would walk into his uh, incredible mansion. You see, this guy was incredibly rich. He had all the fine things of life. His limousine driver would take him to the finest restaurants and then, just for the fun, he would get on his plane and go to Paris just to spend the evening. And John MacArthur says that many Christians live something like Mr. Morris, spending their day-by-day lives in apparent spiritual poverty and only occasionally enjoying the vast riches of his glory that their heavenly Father has given them. How tragic to have at our disposal the God of all the universe and all of his richness calling us into an intimate, personal relationship with him that gives us spiritual strength. But not only does that strength come through God's richness, it also comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, 6 through 25 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things alike. I warn you, as I warned you therefore in the past, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires." If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. The power comes in our life when we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit working in our lives to make these things come alive in our life, that we might therefore have spiritual strength. And notice here that I believe that the strength that Paul prays for is not necessarily a strength to become a better evangelist or a better teacher or a better student, a better mom, a better dad. I believe that the strength that Paul wants the Ephesians to have and to experience is a strength for personal holiness. It's a strength that affects the inner man because that's where this strength goes. It's a battle against sin and self. It's going to who sit on the throne of my heart kind of strength. It's a battle against Satan. It's a battle against our flesh. It's a battle against the world. It's a battle that says, you know what? I no longer want to live like this. I want to forsake the lust. I want to forsake the sexual immorality, the impurity, the jealousy. I want to forsake the strife and the anger and the envy. And I want to replace that, God, through your strength and through your power with love and joy and peace and patience. When the world looks at me and I'm going through a hard time, says you shouldn't be having that love and joy. Oh, yes, I should because I have the power of the Almighty God living inside of me. And I would 
dare say today this is the kind of strength that America needs. You look around in churches and it seems like Christians have lost their way. It seems like Christians have lost this prayer for personal holiness. America is not going to be fixed by any kind of government or any kind of president. America is going to be fixed when they start praying for personal holiness in their life and spiritual victories in their life that help them overcome temptation and that help them live lives of holiness. We need to pray, Holy Spirit, I'm tired of doing things my way. I yield to you. I desire your strength in my life. We need to pray for spiritual strength. Not only for us, but for those that we love. Secondly, this morning, I think we need to pray for the indwelling of Christ in our hearts. Verse 17 says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what does it mean that Christ should dwell in our hearts? I mean, I've already asked Jesus into my life. He is already my Savior. He is in my heart. Does that mean every time that I sin, do I ask Jesus back into my heart again? Absolutely not. That's not what this passage of Scripture is talking about. What this passage of Scripture is talking about is better understood when we look at the word dwell. And that word dwell is really a compound word that means to settle down and be at home. It's the idea of total comfort. So that the verse might read like this, that Christ would settle down and be at home in your hearts. Can I ask you, is Christ settled down and is he at home in your heart? In his book, My Heart, Christ Home, Robert Munger pictures the Christian heart. And he pictures Jesus going throughout the different rooms of the heart. And he starts in the library to see if Jesus is comfortable there, if he can make his home there. But in the library, he might find a book. He might find some TV viewing habits. He might find some music. He might find some social media that need to get out of the library because those things don't draw him closer to God. Those things don't give him the power of God. Those things weaken him or her. And so he says, I need to clean this up. So those things need to get out and I'm going to replace it with the Word of God. And then the Lord may go on to the dining room where the appetites are are on display. What kind of appetites does the Lord see in our hearts this morning? Does He simply just see an appetite for uh, success and finances? Does the the Lord see appetites for just simply recreation or the things that, that build self up? Or does the Lord see appetites for his word to be just immersed in scripture and want to know him in everything, all the counsel of God through through his word? And then he may go on to the living room. And then in the living room, he notices that's where we have fellowship. When we have company over, we typically invite them into the living room and sit down and and we talk and we have fellowship with them. But for many of us, too, that is the place where we fellowship with the Lord Jesus. It's where we open the Bible. That's where we have our quiet time. And I wonder how many times we have walked by the living room just to pass it by. And the Lord's calling out, hey, come in here. I've missed my time with you. But you know what? Sometimes we say, I'm just too busy. 
God, I, I can't do that today. I can't have that kind of fellowship. I've got this to do. I've got that to do. I'm a busy person. You just don't understand. I've got all these things to do. And the Lord cleans that part of our house and says, nope, seek me first in my kingdom, and then I'll add all these things unto you. And then the Lord might go to the tool shed. And in that tool shed, he finds all the things that he's given you to work for his kingdom. He's, he sees all of these things, but they're up on the shelf. They're not being used because we're just simply sitting on the sidelines and we're being a bunch of pew potatoes and we're not doing what God has called us to do with our gifts and our talents and our abilities. Or he may see those things as being used just simply for the wrong thing. And the Lord says, no, I've gifted you and I've talented you to do the work for my kingdom. I need to clean that out. Once he has the whole house clean, he might stumble, walk by the closet, and catch a whiff of something that doesn't smell so pleasant. See, the closet doors are shut. Nobody else can go in there. Nobody else can see in there. Not even your closest friends, not even your parents, not even your spouse can see in there. But there is somebody who can see in that closet, and that is the Lord Jesus. And if he sees something, he smells something that stinks, he's saying, get rid of it. That's the kind of prayer that we need to pray for ourselves. God, I want my mind to be immersed in the Scriptures. I want my appetites to be for you. I want to have fellowship with you. I want my tools, my gifts, my talents, and my abilities to be for you. I don't want to have any stray sins in the closet. Lord Jesus, God, please be comfortable in my heart. Is he comfortable in your heart today? We need to allow the Lord Jesus to do his sanctifying work in us that he might recline and be at home in our hearts. Well, not only should we pray for spiritual strength and the indwelling of Christ, but we should also pray for the understanding of the greatness of God's love. Look with me again at verse 18. It says that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now, I believe we could spend the rest of our lives just bragging on God and His great love, and we would never exhaust the subject because simply God is love. But there are three characteristics that I want us to look at this morning where God's love is just totally magnified and that should impact our life in an incredible way. And the first thing is this, is that God's love is great. If God's love is great, then our love should be great. If we are impacted by the great love of God, we should impact others with the great love of God. But Ephesians 4, chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of this great love with which he has loved us, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. God's love for me when I was helpless, God's love for the helpless flows from his own loving heart, not from anything that I have done to deserve it, not from anything that you have done to deserve it. God just simply loves in spite of who we are, and it's caused us to go from death 
unto life because Jesus hung on a cross and shed his blood for you and me and rose again on the third day and we put our hope and our faith and trust in that, we go from death to life. It caused an incredible reaction in our life. It's not just something that encourages us, but it causes us for go, to go from being dead to being alive. God's love is great. Not only is God's love great, but it's also sacrificial. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God spared nothing for us. He gave us everything that he had. And again, the sacrifice is even more magnified in that his plan, sacrificial plan, didn't alter, it didn't change when he knew that we would rebel against him, when he knew that we were running from him. We were not running to him, we were running away from him. And he said, that's not going to change my plan because my love is great and my love is sacrificial. God sacrificed everything for us. Not only is God's love great not only is it sacrificial but it's also everlasting jeremiah 31 3 says the lord appeared to him from far away i have loved you with an everlasting love therefore i have continued my faithfulness to you so the lord's message to the israelites here when they're in captivity is this listen remember that i've loved you in the past know that i love you right now and know that I will love you in the future for all eternity. That God's love is eternal, it's everlasting, and it's not based on our performance. So here this morning we have three characteristics of God's love. It's great, it's sacrificial, and it's everlasting. So how should that impact us? If we are to be overcome with God's love, if we are to know the greatness of God's love and how that should impact our lives, what does that look like? Well, I too think our love for other people needs to be great. Since God's love impacted us, it changed us. The way we love others, the way we love our students, the way we love our neighbors, the way we love our coworkers should help motivate them and change them. Hebrews 10, 24 says, Let us consider one another, brethren, in order to stir up love and good works. Does the way that you love your family stir up love and good works? Does the way that you love those around you Stir up love and good works. It should have that kind of impact on people. And then next, I believe that our love, just like the Lord, should be sacrificial. Love is a, an attitude of selflessness. It's a matter of the will, not our feelings. It's defined simply as always being selfless and always being giving always being selfless and always being given. It's the very nature and substance of love to deny self and to give to others. Just like John 15, 13 says, greater love has no one than this than he lay down his life for his friends. And then furthermore, I believe that our love should be everlasting. And I think parents can really understand what this everlasting love is like because I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that at some point in time in your life and rearing your children that they probably disappointed you some. They may have been disobedient to you. They, they have, may have made a poor choice. But you know what? Just because they have made a poor choice or they were disobedient, that doesn't mean that you have stopped 
loving them. I think about the many times that I've disappointed my father. I think about the many times that I've dishonored his name. I think about the many times that I've come short of his glory, but still his love is there for me because it's everlasting. We should love people with an everlasting love, not based on what they do for us or based on their performance. Almost last. That means I'm almost done. Paul, Paul's prayer has requested that the Ephesians be spiritually strong, that they experience the indwelling of Christ, that they know the greatness and the magnificence of his love. And all of those three points lead to the last one that says they need to be filled with God's fullness. We need to pray that we're filled with God's fullness. We need to pray that our graduates are filled with God's fullness. Verse 19 says that you may be filled up with the fullness of God. Wilbur Chapman tells this story. He says, I got off the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp, and for a year I begged on the streets for a living. One day I touched a man on the shoulder and said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? As soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? And throwing his arms around me and with tears in his eyes, he said, Oh, my son, at last I have found you. I have found you. You want a dime? Everything that I have is yours. Think of it. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for 18 years he had been looking for me to give me all that he had. Again, how tragic that would be for us as believers when we have at our disposal all of God's love, all of His mercy, all of His compassion, all of His grace, all of His patience, all of His kindness, all of His gentleness, only just to go and ask Him for 10 cents. How many times do we pray, God, I want it all because I know ultimately your plan for my life is to make me look like your son Jesus. God, fill me with the fullness of everything that you have. Fill me with the fullness of everything that you do. Fill me with the fullness of everything that you are. God, I desire that in my life, and I desire that in the life of those around me. How do we get there? I think to understand that, we need to understand what it means to make full and what that speaks of. That word really means dominance. What dominates our life? For example, if a person is filled with rage, they're dominated by hatred. If a person is filled with gossip or slander or lies, they're dominated by their own lack of security in who they are in Christ. But we need to be like John the Baptist who says, I must become less. I must empty myself of myself that I might be filled up with all that God is and all that God wants for my life. Why pray this prayer? 
is so that God can accomplish more than we ask or think for the glory of His name through us. Matter of fact, that's the last point. We're almost home. The last thing is we need to pray that the switch gets turned on. Verse 20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. The switch needs to get turned on. This needs to go from just theory to practice. It needs to go from just words to action. It needs to be going from head knowledge to being manifested in our lives. How and what does that look like? This past weekend, we took a little trip with the juniors and seniors down to Ocean Isle Beach. It was a great trip. Everything was awesome. The last night while we were there, I led a study with our young men, and we talked about how important it was to be a man of God. And some of the things that we need to do to be a man of God is to really work on this issue of anger. It seems like men have to deal with anger and pride. And so we were talking about how we are to rid ourselves of that and to submit to the Holy Spirit. And, and I told them of a teacher that I had in high school. He was my chorus teacher. I had him ninth through 12th grade. And, and when I would mess up, and that seemed to be way too often, he wouldn't paddle, but he would make us write this sentence over and over and over. I remember writing this sentence 500 times, several times, because I messed up several times. And the sentence was this, I must think intelligently, finish it, Austin and Devin, before acting irresponsibly. So we, we sort of ended our lesson with, you know what, sometimes to fight anger in our life, and we're in a, a, a situation to where we're tempted to be angry, we just need to give ourselves a time out and go to the corner and say, I must think intelligently before acting irresponsibly. I must think intelligently before acting irresponsibly. And so we, we finished the lesson, and I thought, you know what, I think the boys have learned something. I think the boys have learned that they should think intelligently before acting irresponsibly. Oh, well, about 2.30 in the morning. Sound asleep. Been asleep for maybe a good hour. I hear a pop. And I'm like, hmm, some of the neighbors must be having a little fun and shooting off fireworks. Surely, surely these fellows wouldn't do anything like that. So I rolled back over and I went to sleep and things didn't think anything else about it until I heard another pop and it was followed by several more pops. And then I heard what I thought like sounded like uh, familiar voices. One of them, my son. <laughs> and so I said, okay, I better get up and investigate this a little more. And so I was, at this point, a little hot. I was needing to give myself a timeout, but, you know, I wanted to get to where the action was going on, going on before, anything, before this anything bad happened. But anyway, I grabbed my phone that has a flashlight on it, put on my flip-flops, and I just had my shorts on. And so uh, I walk outside, and I shut the door behind me, and I'm looking around. And all the time that I'm looking around, I hear more pops, and I hear more laughter, and I hear more giggling and all this stuff, and I can't find anybody anywhere. Go to the back, there's nobody there. Go to the front, there's nobody there. And I rest on the porch 
the deck right there in the front. And I'm thinking, where in the world could they be? And then all of a sudden, the firework goes. <laughs> it's like right over my head, you know, and I was like, I know where they are. These boys are shooting fireworks off from the room. And I thought to myself, I must think intelligently before acting irresponsibly. Well, I go to walk back in the house, and I lock myself out of the house. <laughs> so I had to call my roommate, Mark Moore. Uh, Mark, can you come and open the door for me? I'm, I'm locked out. I'm sure he's probably thinking, what in the world are you doing outside? I said, well, I've got an issue I need to deal with. So he comes and he opens the door, and I go directly to the room to where the perpetrators are, and I open the door, and I'm knocked down by a waft of fireworks, smoke, and smell that about took me to the floor. And six boys looking at me with eyes wide open like, oh, my goodness. And I said, you need to go there. You need to get in that bed. You need to get in that bed, and you need to get in that bed. I shut the door, and I walked out. And they were probably thinking, is that all he's going to say? <laughs> Next morning, we wake up, didn't go back to sleep, hardly at all, tired, got to drive home the next day, just really tired. Mark's got to drive his van back home the next day. We're just all tired, and I'm sure the boys are tired too because they were up, I was up. I was up, they were up. And so what happened was at breakfast the next morning, I didn't say anything to them. And then they started feeling a little more comfortable. They started bragging about it a little bit, you know. <laughs> Shut those fireworks off, ha, 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 you know. A little bravado building up. And then didn't say anything. And then we closed our time together with a prayer for the seniors, as we always do. And then I said, before we leave, guys, this is what we're going to do. I need to tell you all a story. And then I proceeded to tell them the story of what happened. Of course, they already knew, but nobody else knew. And I said, for that reason, for this reason, here's what you're going to do. You're going to ride home with Mark Moore in his van, and you're going to help him drive all the way home, and you're not going to sleep. Because I didn't sleep, Mark didn't sleep, you're not going to sleep. You're going to help Mark drive home in the van. And so uh, that was their punishment, plus I made them say before every conversation that they started and every question that they asked anybody anywhere at any time with, I must think intelligently before acting irresponsibly. Crazy lesson, but what do we learn? What do we learn from that? I say this morning that we need to think intelligently of how to pray for ourselves and for those that we love. I say we need to think intelligently and rightly, and the only way that we can do that is through the study and immersing ourselves in the Word of God. But it can't stop there. These studies and these prayers have got to be put into action. They must act responsibly on what we've thought about intelligently. And so my, my question is this. Do you, when you pray a prayer like this, are they just words or do you really want them to turn into action? Do you really want to be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you really want to have the indwelling Christ? Do you really want to know the manifestation of God's love? Do you really want to be full of the Lord Jesus? Then if so, your responsible action is to yield yourself to Him. That's my prayer for you guys.
that in whatever endeavor of life that you take, you yield yourself to Him. This morning, as we close, our invitation comes, I would ask you to evaluate your prayer life. Do you pray like this? Do you pray for others like this? Do you need to come and pray like this this morning by yourself? Or do you need to grab one of these graduates this morning and bring them to the altar and pray for them in that way? Then you come. Or maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. You don't have a relationship with Christ. You don't, you don't even know what we're talking about, but the Lord has convicted you of your sin and you know now that Jesus died on the cross for you and you want to have him as your Savior and heaven as your home. You come and you speak to Pastor Scott as he will be here at the front. Whatever the Lord leads you to do, be obedient to him. Yield yourself to him.